0: This year marks a major anniversary. It is 530 years since the momentous events of 1492, the conquest of Granada, the expulsion of the Jews from Spain and the dispatching of Christopher Columbus across the Atlantic. Each one of these had an incalculably great effect on the course of history. And each one of these was the action of one couple, isabel known in english as isabella of castile and ferdinando or ferdinand of aragon theirs was a royal partnership characterized by the pursuit of piety purity and power to explore their rule and the actions and decisions of 1492 i'm delighted to be joined by giles tremlett giles is a journalist He writes for The Guardian and he's the author of four books, including a very good biography of Catherine of Aragon and an even more excellent biography of Isabella of Castile, which won the Elizabeth Longford Prize in 2018. He's a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics and is speaking to me from Madrid. Jos, it is an absolute honour, I'd say, to speak to you because I have been reading you for so long and had your voice in my head for so long that it's just fabulous to see you in person and have a chance to chat with you.
1: Well, Susanna, that's lovely to hear and thank you very much indeed. I'm looking forward to talking about such a fantastic year.
0: Yes, so we are here in this big anniversary year of 1492 and I want us to get to talk about the key events of that year But I suppose we ought to start by setting the scene. Let's talk about Isabella and Ferdinand and who they were. Can you introduce them, please?
1: Well, they are a remarkable couple. They are basically the founders of what we today think of as Spain, One being the monarch of Aragón, which is eastern Spain, sort of based on Barcelona, and the other being the Queen of Castile, far more powerful and important than her husband, who is Isabella and who is basically the rest of Spain as we think of it today, except to begin with, when of course there are bits of modern Spain, particularly in the south, that still haven't been conquered or reconquered as Spaniards like to think of it.
0: So you've alluded there to the fact that Isabella is more powerful. Is she the senior partner or could we think of this as an equal partnership?
1: She's definitely the senior partner in the sense that her kingdom is bigger than his. Let's say three times bigger in terms of population, in terms of wealth. Castile at the time is immensely wealthy on the back of its sheep. Millions of sheep wandering the plains of the Meseta, Spain's sort of high table land so she's the senior partner in that sense but she's a woman which of course is a disadvantage at the time and so they sort of have to come to an agreement between the two of them about how they're going to play this it's really quite remarkable in the sense that they seem to find a sort of balance between them which allows them to be co-monarchs and basically share power in the way I think even today. And I look very closely when I was writing about this, even at sort of the literature of modern contemporary corporations to find co-CEOs or co-presidents who actually can run an organisation together. And they're very rare, but in this case, it worked.
0: So we have a woman in Isabella who is unusual at the time because she's a queen regnant at a time when in France, under the Salic law, you can't have queens regnant. We don't have them in England, really, till later in the 16th century. How did she defy these gender expectations?
1: Well, she defied them considerably in the Spanish context. So Spain itself had some very distant queen regnants in Castile, sort of going back to the 11th century, who had bad reputations as having been a bit of a disaster. And certainly she was surrounded by men who assumed simply that they would rule for her. And if they weren't going to rule for her, and I'm talking about nobles, grandees, as we call them in Spain, that her husband would do that in her place. And this didn't happen, and is really proof of just how extraordinary she herself was in exercising power.
0: What do you think drove her?
1: Well, in many ways, she's a very simple and uncomplicated character. She has a very sort of clear-sighted view of what being a monarch is. She has no doubt about her own power or her own right to use that power. And she has this very simple idea of Spanish monarchs, like virtually all monarchs of the time, as being God-appointed, and that therefore she's on God's mission and that her task is to basically purify Spain, that Spain's problems or other Castile's problems under previous kings, being her half-brother and her father, who were very weak kings, both of them, and had other nobles basically ruling for them, that this was some kind of punishment from God that Castile's destiny was to be great and she was the person to deliver on that and that anyone who got in her way should be treated roughly, basically.
0: So that starts to give us a sense, I suppose, of her methods and also of this pursuit of Christian unity, I suppose, religious homogeneity. I mean, the very antithesis of religious toleration. One of the mechanisms that's famous that we're familiar with that was used for this was, of course, the Inquisition. Now, there'd been Inquisitions before. What was different about the Spanish Inquisition?
1: Well, basically what was different about it was that it was a royal Inquisition. So church and state were working together, and that gave it a lot more, let's call it, executive power. It could be far more efficient in what it did. In simple terms, the church would decide what needed to be done, and the state would carry it out. If that meant burning people at the stake, it meant burning people at the stake. But what it meant in terms of Spanish history was a remarkable change because the Inquisition is set up basically because Spain, which had had a very large Jewish population by the time Isabel came to power, had a large population of recent converts, the conversos. Who were mostly Jews who had converted or their families who converted at the end of the 14th century when there was a lot of mob violence against Jews. And during the reigns of the two previous monarchs, this had been studied quite closely to see whether these were genuine converts or not genuine converts, whether they were practicing what they called Judaizing, which is basically following Jewish customs and religious rites or not. And the previous investigations, which have been carried out by churchmen, had decided that no they weren't that these were actually very good Christians and in some cases much better Christians than what were known as the old Christians in Spain because they'd actually had to learn it and as some Jews were very learned or came from very learned families many of them were actually much better Christians knew a lot more about what it meant than the old Christian families But it also produced a new social caste, shall we say, which is the conversos, or the new Christians, who suddenly became competitors for jobs, positions, things that were previously not permitted to Jews were now permitted to these new converts. And that had set up considerable conflict in Spanish cities, especially in Castile, but also in Aragon, over the previous decades. And this was really sort of what was driving socially the Inquisition. And then Isabel is really the first monarch to decide on the advice of some churchmen, specifically the notorious Tomase Torquemada, who becomes the chief inquisitor, that actually, yes, there are Judaizing conversos and they need to be hunted down and they need to be discovered and they need to be punished or shamed. And this is what the Inquisition does. It's a huge change in a country which had religious minorities, both Jews and Muslims, and had had for centuries. And it's the beginning of this process of purifying Spain in the religious sense, which will continue for centuries to come.
0: It's very interesting that its focus isn't specifically Jews or indeed Muslims at this point. It's very much on those who have converted. And there's a sense in which it's, I guess, a form of totalitarianism. It's trying to examine people's thoughts as opposed to their behaviour. Is that fair?
1: It is fair. The trouble there being that the evidence then comes via their behaviour. And so in the trials, you know, often people are actually being judged on whether they cook in a Jewish fashion, whether they wear Jewish style clothes. Often women are the targets because they're in charge of the domestic sphere. And the domestic sphere is where cultural customs continued in families that had Jewish origins, but were Christians. So it's a very difficult thing because they're guessing what's happening in people's minds by looking at their everyday customs. What there isn't at any point really is much evidence of actual written thought or spoken thought of people having been heard to say that they are really Jews or having written down Jewish texts or exchanged messages about the Jewish faith. It's really very heavily based on custom, which of course is cultural and not necessarily religious.
0: That's really interesting. So that's an important part of the background, but let us fast forward <laughs> through this crucial and important reign to 1492, because this is the anniversary we're in. Isabella's 40 years old. She's at the height of her power and prestige. And on the 2nd of January, 1492, the combined armies of Ferdinand and Isabella, having defeated the last emir, Mohammed the 12, finally entered the last stronghold of Muslim power in Granada. And this marks the extinction of the last Muslim state in Western Europe after eight centuries, I suppose, of struggle between Christianity and Islam for control of the Iberian Peninsula. How did they get to this point?
1: Well, this is the end of what's known as the reconquest of Muslim Spain. The Muslims had arrived in the 8th century, swept all the way through Spain incredibly fast, They did in two to three years what it had taken the Romans hundreds of years to achieve. And then there'd been a slow pushing back over the centuries until the only kingdom that was left was Granada on the south coast of Spain. And in fact, until Isabel took the crown, there really hadn't been much action, shall we say, since the mid 13th century. Restarting the reconquest was very useful for her because under her father and her brother-in-law, the nobles had been a real problem and they had to be kept busy and out of the affairs of the monarchy. And this was one way to keep them busy and to allow them to basically win wealth by fighting you know, every town they took was an opportunity to be rewarded with lands and to take away prisoners, slaves and goods, etc. And it was also a unifying exercise for Aragon and Castile. Lots of Aragonese people came to fight, as indeed did people from all over Europe. There were people who arrived from England as well. Several hundred joined in various phases of the Reconquista. And so in 1492, they finally reduced Granada basically to the city of Granada. And that's when King Mohammed, Abu Abdil, as he's known, formally hands over the key to the Alhambra leaves the Alhambra with his people, and is allowed to go off to the nearby al mountains and occupy some lands there, but no longer as anything more than a noble vassal, shall we say, of Isabel. In the wider context, of course, you know, we're at a period where Christendom has been shrinking for a very long time. And the idea that someone can actually turn the tables on the Muslim world and inflict defeat on this growing threat to Christendom is greeted with absolute joy all over Europe. In St. Paul's, there's a Te Deum. Across Europe, everybody is celebrating this magnificent feat of arms. Today, you know, it might look to us as a sort of tragic event when the mixed cultures of Spain, you know, begin to disappear. But at the time, it was considered marvelous and a real booster for Christendom, along with other things that happened in 1492.
0: Lots of queens in history have been portrayed as warrior queens when they scarcely went near a battlefield. How much did Isabella herself intervene in
1: the war? Well, Isabella is not Joan of Arc. People wanted her to be Joan of Arc in the way she's been written about, but she was very traditional in her sense of what a woman's role was and what a man's role was in warfare. So the fighting was up to Ferdinand, But she was very, very involved in what you might call the logistics. She was the one who organized everything from the hundreds of cannons that they gathered together, which were immensely important in this war, because finally cannons were powerful enough to actually knock down the walls of cities and castles. So this was a technological advance that actually made it possible to defeat large walled castles and walled cities. Whereas beforehand, you know, you would have had to have had a massively long siege to achieve anything. So she was very important in that sense. And also we are in the age of chivalry and as the woman to whom all these knights can devote their triumph. So she also has this symbolic role as, you know, the person to whom all this is devoted and dedicated And that in particular is a role that she loves. You know, she is actually a very keen reader of the chivalric novels that begin to appear at this time. And that is the kind of imaginary world that she lives in, in the sense of her imagination of what the world should be like. So all these things kind of come together very neatly for her. And that's her role, really. I mean, she's immensely important. You know, logistics in warfare is just as important as the actual fighting itself and she was very much on top of that.
0: What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman, And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever you get your podcasts, brought to you by History Hit. About this as a massive blow, really, for cultural coexistence. And I suppose that brings us to that event that also is devastating to that cultural coexistence, which of course is that on the 31st of March 1492, Isabella and Ferdinand issued the Alhambra Decree expelling Jews from Spain. And then this is promulgated about a month later. So, what was going on here? What were the conditions of this decree? What prompted it? How had they come to believe? that it was imperative that Spain had no Jewish
1: inhabitants? Well, the expulsion of the Jews is really a continuation of the Inquisition and is very telling that the first expulsion order, it actually comes from the bishopric of Girona in Aragon and it's signed by the bishop there, who happens to be Torquemada, who also happens to be the driving force behind the Inquisition. And in fact, you can see in the Alhambra Edict that it's a copy and paste much, and that his hand is behind it. The idea of the expulsion is that if there are converted Jews in Spain who are being tempted back towards their old faith, it's because there are Jews in Spain, and that the best thing to do is to remove the temptation. This is the logic that's applied. The conditions are extremely difficult. The Jews basically have to Sell up everything they have and leave the country either to Portugal, which is the obvious place for a lot of people, or to anywhere else that will have them and treat them well, which at the time is not very many places. It ends up basically being the Ottoman Empire. And so we had this, you know, remarkable thing. A hundred years earlier, Spain had the largest Jewish population in the world. Seville was the largest Jewish city in the world, in terms of the number of Jews in its population. And so suddenly, these people have to leave, they have to sell up everything they've got. Normally at cut prices, many of them, particularly some of the more powerful members of the community, do actually convert, and there's quite a lot of conversion that happens at this particular moment because they want to basically hold on to their lives. Jews had been in Spain for 10 to 15 centuries. It's difficult to work out exactly how long. And so those families' histories went back a huge distance in time. Why did Isabella and Ferdinand think they could do this? Well, on the basis that actually the Jews, just like the Muslims within their own lands, were directly tolerated. And the word that is used is tolerated, which suggests... Not accepted, but it's very different. Accepted and tolerated implies there's something bad or disagreeable that you are tolerating and that their only protection, in fact, in that situation in Spanish society, in Castilian society, Aragonese society, was that they had the protection of the monarch. And so Isabel would talk about Jews as my Jews. And indeed, before the expulsion, she would also protect them if she thought they were being mistreated because they were technically her Jews. Because they were her Jews, she also thought, she could do what she wanted with them, including spelling them. And so in 1492, in the space of just a few months, we had this remarkable event in Spain where these trains of Jewish refugees, mule trains or of families heading west towards the border in Portugal and then crossing over to a new world, which they really don't know what's going to happen to them. And then just a huge series of disasters, in fact, is Generally, what happens to them, they're mistreated in Portugal, then some of them tried to go to what today is Morocco, they're mistreated in Morocco, and a lot of them actually return. It's a very interesting part of the history of the time, which is only just being sort of properly investigated, is to see how many Jews left and then decided that they had to come back, that there really was no future for them outside Spain. And this, of course, is the origin of the Sephardic Jewish community around the world. And that's why that community, still some parts of it, speak a language called Ladino. And Ladino is basically a sort of 15th, 16th century Spanish. I myself have conversed with people where they're speaking Ladino and I'm speaking Spanish. I remember doing that in Sarajevo 20 odd years ago, and it was a remarkable spirit.
0: So it was evidently devastating to the Jewish communities who were affected. Do we have any estimates on how many people were displaced?
1: Well, that's very difficult. There are plenty of estimates in the hundreds of thousands or the tens of thousands. Again, what we don't know is really how many converted, and that would give us the answer to that. But, you know, it's a considerable number of people. And perhaps more importantly, it's the end of a culture. It's the end of Judaism in Spain, which had been very rich, especially intellectually. And so it's a major loss for the Jewish world.
0: Absolutely. And it's also important to note that a decade later, a similar choice between baptism, converting, or exile or death would be offered to the Muslim population of Castile, and then a similar persecution to those who chose to remain and convert.
1: Indeed. I mean, the idea at the time when Boadil signed the surrender of Granada is that Spanish Muslims would be allowed to continue practicing their religion as before, that they would not be persecuted. But again, it only took 10, 12 years for the Inquisition to turn up and to begin to find little gaps, shall we say, in the law where they could begin to, in this case, particularly They started hunting down the children of the Christian converts, of the Christians who had converted to Islam and then gone to live in the kingdom of Granada before it had been conquered. These were known as the Elches, and they felt that the Elche community was theirs, that they had Christian origins, and therefore they had jurisdiction over them. That actually sparked a riot. In Granada. And strangely, the reaction to the riot was to send in troops and then start forcible conversions, which became a sort of tidal wave, which spread all the way through the city and across the old kingdom of Granada and produced another tidal wave of conversions, which unfortunately in this case were not sincere because Islam does, in fact, allow you a get out where you can pretend to convert in a situation where you're being forced to, basically. And that sort of stored up problems for later. And Moriscos, as they became known, would be expelled in the 17th century, finally. So that was sort of setting up another source of tension, but at the same time, formally making Spain an entirely Christian country. After that, on paper, there weren't any Muslims left, there weren't any Jews left. Everybody in Spain was a Christian. And this really is what I think Isabella, especially, was seeking all along. And certainly she listened very closely to people like Torquemada. They were very influential on her. And that was her religious programme.
0: The final event of 1542 that we absolutely must discuss involves an Italian sailor from Genoa, who in English we call Christopher Columbus. And in 1492, Isabella and Ferdinand agreed to sponsor his proposition to sail across the Western Ocean in an attempt to reach the Indies. How does this connect up with what we've been talking about so far? Why did they do this?
1: Well, several things are going on to bring about the great Columbus event. The first thing is, in 1492, Columbus himself is actually there. He's a witness to the fall of Granada. He watches as Boyabdil and his people leave the city. Columbus had been around for several years, not just in Spain, but in Portugal, and his brother had also been wandering around Europe in France and also in England, trying to sell their project of sailing across the ocean sea, as it was known, to find Asia, which was assumed to be on the other side. He had been rebuffed everywhere, including in Castile and had gone to Granada to make another attempt to change the mind of Isabel and her advisors. That didn't succeed, so he rode off from Granada, and as he's riding off a day later, he hears a horse galloping up behind him, and it's a messenger from Isabel saying, you know, that they have changed their mind, and that, yes, this can be done. In terms of expense, Isabel has just taken The kingdom of Granada, that's been a huge and costly exercise. The expense of sending three boats and 150 odd sailors on a trip into the ocean from which they might not come back was really minimal. And in fact, part of it could be paid off by obliging the sailors in Palos de la Frontera, which is where Columbus finally sets off from, to pay the debts that they owed the crown in terms of boats and men. So it's a very small expense. What to me is fascinating is the relationship we see between Columbus and Isabel, where again, we get a reminder that we're in the age of chivalry. In that sense, you know, Columbus really comes across as one of the heroes of the kind of books that Isabel was reading of men who go off and do these sort of magnificent adventures in the name of honor, glory, and God. And Columbus himself, you can see in the way he approaches her, in the way he writes to her, he's very much playing the sort of chivalrous gentleman adventurer. He's almost passionate towards her in the way he speaks to Isabel. So all these things come together. Columbus, in many ways, could be deemed mad. It's a crazy idea. Nobody knows what's on the other side of the ocean. He doesn't know what's on the other side of the ocean because he doesn't find Asia, as we all know. He sails into the Caribbean, having lied to his sailors every day about how far they were going. He would pretend every day that they'd covered a much smaller distance so that they wouldn't mutiny out of fear that they would never get home. Anyway, eventually, they sail into the Caribbean and they find the Americas. But certainly, Columbus has no idea when he arrives there that these are the Americas. He thinks he's finding the outer islands of Asia. And what in effect he has done is expand with this one journey, the reach, first of Castile, whose name he's sailing in, second of Christendom, which is very important. And third, of what would then become known as the Western world or Western culture, which after all is the sort of inheritance of Christendom. So in that sense, it's a key historical event. We all know that other people had got to the Americas before, you know, the Vikings and maybe others. But this is when the fluid contact is set up. Columbus has discovered that there are circular winds and currents in the Atlantic, the means you can sail in one direction and then come back following those winds on their circular course. And that basically sets up the link between Europe and the Americas, which has shaped much of history since then.
0: Absolutely. And I suppose the last thing to consider is that that discourse, that idea of the chivalric adventure hero, actually went on, I think, to influence much of the telling of that story. You know, it's as if the story of Columbus has been told in a kind of triumphalist way and venerated as part of America's origin story for a long time. But in recent years, of course, the indigenous peoples of America who have lived in the land for some 15,000 years or something before Columbus's discovery have quite rightly pointed to the fact that his arrival ultimately meant their enslavement, their infection, their slaughter, as well as the theft of their lands. So how do you think we should speak of Columbus's voyages today?
1: Well, that's very difficult, and you rightly pointed out the effect on the indigenous people, but I think we should also add in the fact the first black African slaves to arrive in America arrive on some of those first fleets when Isabel was still alive, and you could argue that Spain started the transatlantic slave trade, and Columbus was, in fact, someone who was all in favor, in his case, of actually enslaving the indigenous people of the Americas, which was a difficult case to argue. And Isabella herself actually opposed that on the basis that they were meant to be religious innocents, and therefore under the laws of the time, they couldn't be enslaved. You could only enslave people who actively believed in something different. So when we look at it now, obviously we have to do two things, I think. We have to separate out the fact That this all happened in another time when values were obviously very different. But we also have to be very aware of the impact. And the impact very directly, even right at the beginning, is this massive wiping out of entire populations in the Caribbean who fell foul of smallpox and other Western diseases. This is also the start of the Great Columbine Exchange, which is this extraordinary exchange of species and diseases between Europe or between the rest of the world and the American continent. So how do we look at it now? Well, we can look at it as part of history. We can look at it as a kind of origin story for the exploitation of foreign lands. Spain, its attitude towards its new colonies is entirely extracted. Once Columbus himself is going in search of gold, he wants to bring back gold. And if you can't find gold, then slaves. And that is, if you want the definition of an extractive economy, you go there and you take something and you bring it back. And so, you know, the origins of many things are caught up in this single moment of history. Obviously, with our values today, it's not something we can ethically approve of, but it's very important that we should study it and work out exactly how things happened and ask ourselves why things happened as well. Because otherwise, I think we end up with a very sort of superficial condemnation, which doesn't add much to our ability to judge these things or to work out how they inform our present and our future
0: thank you that's a really thoughtful response thank you so much for introducing us to three extraordinary and huge events and to this dynamic couple in this amazing overview today it's been really lovely to have your company on the podcast today Josh. thank you
1: Susanna thank you thank you very much indeed
0: Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and Not Just the Tudor love.